Hey bubs, welcome back to a brand new episode of Talkin' Snicked, the best podcast there is at what it does, and what it does best is tell you about Wolverine. I'm your host Ryan, today's episode is our final episode of October 2019, and with it we close out our monthly theme of Healing Factor. Earlier this month we saw what would happen if Wolverine were to completely disintegrate all the way down to his adamantium skeleton and one living cell, and how he was able to build his body all the way back, we went to the far reaches of space to see how his healing factor would stack up against an alien species, and we go to space one last time here this month to see what happens when Wolverine's adamantium is ripped out of his body. That's right, this time we cover the six-issue X-Men crossover event of 1993, Fatal Attractions. So, Bubs, like I said, Fatal Attractions was a six-issue crossover event. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term crossover, uh, a crossover is a story that takes place over multiple titles. So not just, you know, concurrent issues of the same title like Uncanny X-Men 1, 2, 3, 4. No, this takes place over all of the various books that come out as part of one particular line, in this case the X-Line. So this story takes place not only in the pages of X-Men, but Uncanny X-Men, X-Factor, X-Force, Wolverine, and Excalibur, as well as Adjectiveless X-Men. So it takes place over six issues. It ran from July through November of 1993. We had X-Factor 92 in July. We had X-Force 25 in August. We had Uncanny X-Men 304 in September. In October, we had X-Men 25. And in November, we had Wolverine 75 and Excalibur number 71. Now, I'm going to introduce the creative teams behind all of these issues now because... Well, the creative teams are rather large. Uh, the pro- the thing with a lot of these crossovers is the issues are larger than usual. You know, a usual comic book ranges anywhere from, you know, 18 to about 22 pages. And all of the issues in this series ran about 35 or more issues. So... The creative teams on these books, it wasn't just, you know, a writer and a penciler and an inker and a colorist. No, what happened here is they would have the usual writer, maybe have someone helped with scripting or with plotting. Then they would bring in the penciler, and depending on the issue, they might have multiple people uh, drawing panels or even pages of the book. Same thing goes with inkers. You might have anywhere from one to six inkers on one book. So I want to go ahead and just introduce all of the creative teams now uh, so that no one gets missed or skipped over. So the first issue in the Fatal Attractions six-issue crossover was X-Factor number 92. So the writer of this issue was Scott Lobdell with writing assisting from Joe Quesada and J.M. Dematis. We have pencils from Joe Quesada, inks from Al Milgram and Cliff Van Meter, Colors from Glynis Oliver, and Letters from Richard Starkings. The next issue is X-Force number 25. This one we have writing from Fabian Nicieza, pencils from Greg Capullo, inks from 
Bob Viacek, Dan Green, Paul Ryan, Jimmy Palmiotti, Scott Hanna, Kevin Conrad, Al Milgram, colors from George Russos, letters from Chris Eliopoulos. Next up after that is Uncanny X-Men, number 304. This time we have writing Scott Lobdell. Pencils from Jay Lee, Chris Sprouse, Brandon Peterson, Paul Smith, John Ramita Jr. Inks from Terry Austin, Dan Green, Dan Panosian, Tom Palmer, Keith Williams. Colors from Mike Thomas. Letters from Chris Iliopoulos again. Next up we have X-Men, Adjectiveless X-Men, number 25. Again writing, Fabian Nicieza. This time we have Andy Kubert on pencils. We have inks from Matt Ryan, colors from Joe Roses, and letters from Bill Oakley. The smallest creative team <laughs> that we've seen on a book. Just the regular creative team for Adjectiveless X-Men. Uh, Nicieza would generally give a little bit more than the 20 pages or 22 pages or so. So a 22 or even a 30 page issue here was apparently more than enough time for that creative team to handle. Next up is Wolverine, number 75, writing from Larry Hama. Penciler, uh, pencils from Adam Kubert, brother of Andy. We have inks from Mark Farmer, Dan Green, Mark Pennington. Colors from Steve Bucciolato. Letters from Pat Brousseau. And that brings us to our final chapter of Fatal Attractions, which is Excalibur, number 71, writing from Scott Lobdell. Pencils from Ken Lashley, Derek Robertson, and Matt Ryan. And inks from Cam Smith, Randy Elliott, Randy Emberlin, Mark Nelson. Colors from Joe Roses. And letters from Bill Oakley, Pat Brousseau, and Dave Sharp. So a lot of different names in here. A lot of these names are uh, people that have worked on X books and had been in and out of the X office for, at this point in history, you know, the last five, ten years. Uh, obviously, big names are missing here. Jim Lee, uh, John Byrne, Mark Silvestri, Rob Liefeld. The Fatal Attraction storyline was the big crossover of 1993, and it came, it was the second big crossover after the, you know, Age of Claremont came to an end, and then all of Claremont's successors jumped ship over to Image Comics. So, I know that I've briefly touched on the history of, you know, X-Men 90s <laughs> comics here on the show before, but as this is mostly a Wolverine podcast and not an X-Men podcast, we don't go into too much detail and that doesn't really change. But uh, Chris Claremont up to this point had been the driving force, the most pronounced voice on the X-Men and the X-Lines pretty much since he took over in 1976 or whatever it was, 1975, right after Len Wein and Dave Cockrum did Giant Size X-Men. So Chris Claremont had been on the books from the mid-70s all the way until 1991 where Marvel created a brand new book. Now, Chris Claremont would remain on Uncanny X-Men, and he'd be partnered up with a new artist, and he would also launch with Jim Lee a brand new flagship X-Men title simply called X-Men, and in 1991, this title launched. He revamped all the things that he had done to Magneto, returned Magneto to villainy, and set the tone for all of the upcoming X-Men stories that would take place over the next decade and a half. The problem was there were some issues behind the scenes, things like that. There's stories that go around, feelings get hurt, and people leave books. And Chris Claremont was one of the first ones to leave the X-Men titles. So after he leaves, the titles are kind of scrounging for a voice. You know, he leaves 
I think slightly before he left, uh, Louise Simonson, who had been writing New Mutants and X-Factor, also left. So uh, pretty much all the writers of all the X-Books at this time, they all just leave. And so Marvel has to put new writers in. A lot of the artists start doing co-plotting with other guys, and then those guys are also doing the script and everything. So there's this, it ushers in this new age of collaboration, but the problem is there wasn't really any distinctive voice and there wasn't any overarching storyline or theme that you can really see in all of these books, like you had when Claremont and uh, Louis Simonson were writing the books. You know, there wasn't this, I wouldn't say equal tone, but there didn't seem to be an equal goal in the books. It was all just kind of, these are the stories that we're going to tell. Well, half the artists on the X-Books up and leave only about a year or so into, you know, their respective runs. Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, and Wills Portacio, and then, of course, John Byrne leaves. Peter David leaves writing X-Factor. And so they're kind of scrambling here. You got Scott Lobdell comes in, and he takes over temporary writing on a few of the titles until eventually he settles in as permanent writer of Uncanny X-Men, and then eventually both Uncanny and Adjectiveless. In the meantime, you've got Fabian Cieza who finally comes in and he kind of takes over on Uncanny for a little while, as well as X-Force. And they get some stability in their artists as well, with Andy Kubert going on X-Men. Eventually you have Joe Manorera coming in for Uncanny X-Men. So you get a little bit of, of stabilization. And once that happens, we start seeing the crossovers happen again. So in 1992, the big X-crossover was... The Executioner's Song, which sets the stage for a few of the things that happened in this story, although this is kind of the culmination of all the things that Chris Claremont had set up in his first few issues of X-Men before he left. So that kind of brings us to Fatal Attraction. So what's going on? I had mentioned that Chris Claremont kind of revamped Magneto for adjectiveless X-Men. At some point in the comics, Magneto had been like de-aged to an infant and then re-aged back up to an adult, only this time now, he wasn't such a bad guy, he was actually a good guy. He eventually took over as like headmaster of Xavier's school when Xavier was off in space, and so he headmastered while the New Mutants attended there. He partnered up with a lot of the various X-Men teams, he tried to like infiltrate the Hellfire Club and everything, until eventually discovering the truth. You know, he found out that he had been de-aged by, you know, Xavier's longtime cohort, Moira McTaggart. And so Magneto was back. He wanted revenge on the X-Men for them doing to him what they did, as well as he's now back to believing his, you know, in his vision of the future, which is mutants need to live apart and amass power. And once they have power, they need to overthrow the humans, pretty much enslave the human race, because humans with, you know, the introduction of mutants are now obsolete. Eventually there won't be any more humans and mankind will be completely evolved into mutants. And so we don't really need mankind. All that we have to look forward to if we leave them to their own devices is hatred and bigotry and violence towards mutants. So Xavier, or excuse me, Magneto's dream is to, you know, enslave the human race pretty much. Rule the world, create a safe haven for mutants where mutants are the dominating species. So he gets back to his dream and he leaves Earth. He creates this asteroid, asteroid M, call it Avalon or Haven or Heaven or whatever you want to call it. I always get confused because it's got different names and then, you know, different shows and other mediums also refer to the storyline and they all call it something different. Usually I call it Avalon or, or Asteroid M. 
So it's this like orbiting space station up in space that Magneto pretty much put there using his magnetic abilities where mutants can come and begin the creation of a mutant society. And eventually once this mutant society is big enough and strong enough and powerful enough, then they will take over the world pretty much. That's, that's his goal. So that's what's going on with Magneto. The X-Men, obviously we have two different teams, one in Uncanny, one in X-Men. We have an Excalibur team, we have an X-Factor team, we have an X-Force team. And eventually all of these stories cross over. So the first issue of Fatal Attractions, X-Factor 92, is a little... It's not part of the main story, but it leads up to the events that really take place in Uncanny 304, X-Men 25, and Wolverine 70. The two issues before those are kind of set up, and then the final issue, which is Excalibur 71, is kind of like an epilogue, sort of, if you will. So X-Factor starts off in a nursing home. There is a nurse here, Leslie Murray, and she is like facing off against these brightly costumed evil mutants who we eventually find out and, and we would know already if we, you know, if you'd been reading since X-Men 1, you'll find out that Magneto's followers who live with him on Avalon or Asteroid M, they're called the Acolytes and they almost have like a messianic worship of Magneto. You know, he is going to deliver the mutant people. They do his bidding. They call themselves the Acolytes. They are pretty much, you know, mutant zealots, mutant terrorists. At this point in the comics, right before this happens, one of the Acolytes like turns on Magneto and attempts to kill him and then uses his apparent death as like a means to raise himself up as like the new mutant messiah. And kind of, he takes control of the Acolytes and kind of sends them on missions and we just happen to see what happens when X-Factor comes across one of these groups of Acolytes and it starts here in this nursing home with nurse Leslie Murray going up a group going up against a group of Acolytes I'm not going to name them or say who they are there's like 50 Acolytes and I'm not going <laughs> to memorize all of them and all of their names and all of their powers there's a couple of them in here that are particularly nasty their whole mission here in this nursing home is to well kill humans they arrive here, they start using, you know, anti-human slurs like flat scan and saying like, we're the Acolytes and we're, we demand retribution in the name of Magneto and we're here to kill like the weakest humans and everything. And they just like start this massacre. Well, after the fact, it turns out that Nurse Murray is still alive. And so she is now being questioned on the, the, the night's events by X-Factor, who at this point is operating as like a mutant outreach team that is like a government sanctioned version of like the x-men so like this is the x-men that the government put together it's led by havoc cyclops's younger brother alex uh his girlfriend i guess at the time polaris lorna dane it's also got wolf spain rain sinclair it has uh, quicksilver pietro maximoff who canonically at this point was the son of magneto and it has uh, guido who is Strong Guy. I love Strong Guy. He's one of my favorites. And of course, it kind of sets off a bit of a philosophical debate amongst the team who are mutants and Valerie Cooper, who is like their government liaison, who is is a human. Uh, X-Factor is kind of shocked at the brutality of the Acolytes coming this far as to attack, you know, senior citizens and old folks. Uh, eventually we find out, though, that this attack was mostly a ruse i mean yeah they wanted retribution against humans and yeah they wanted to kill quote-unquote flat scans but it was mostly a ruse to kind of get x-factor out into the open where they can then try to 
get Quicksilver out into the open. Anyway, at one point, X-Factor is able to um, capture one of Magneto's followers, one of his acolytes. They are able to get some information out of him that, you know, this was all part of the plan and it was to distract X-Factor so that the acolytes can hit this other place. Uh, he also goes to mention like, oh yeah, you know, it's you know, Quicksilver, now that Magneto is dead, you have to kind of take over his dream. You're his son and all this. And, you know, I'll submit to you, but, uh, you know, you definitely don't want to go over here to this other location, which, again, is is mostly a ruse. So Val Cooper goes, okay, well, I got to take Quicksilver to this other location that this Acolyte just mentioned, but I can't take everyone there. I'm going to leave the rest of X-Factor here. And, you know, Havoc's like, you know, like, heck, you are. We're going to come with you. Valerie Cooper says, nope. So the rest of x-factor like yeah we're not gonna sit here and listen to this crap like we're gonna just we'll just follow them if we have to so while x-factor is following valerie cooper and quicksilver to whatever location it is that they're going to they're actually intercepted by a mutant named exodus who kind of appears and doesn't really do anything like he just shows up and then flies away and x-factor's like yeah i don't know who that was or or what's going on but we'll have to We'll have to try to figure out who this guy is sooner or later, but, you know, we have more pressing matters. We need to follow them to where it is that they're going. So eventually we find out that Val Cooper, Quicksilver, and Random appear at this place called Cape Hayden. And it's a military base that seems to be an anti-mutant military base. And they don't take too kindly to Valerie Cooper showing up with Quicksilver and Random. But before they can really do anything, Quicksilver uses his speed and disarms everybody. And at that point is when Senator Kelly appears and he's like, oh, Dr. Cooper, like I wasn't really expecting you and all this. Um, and Valerie Cooper's like, well, you know, we have reason to believe that there's a target on this base and we've come to investigate. But we've also heard some other rumors of some things that are going on here and we're not super happy about it. So they go a little further down into the base and they find out that, and and Valerie Cooper has known this the whole time, that the government has secretly like restarted Operation Wide Awake, which is their program code name for the Sentinel program. So they get to this base, they find out that this whole time Senator Kelly's been, you know, leading this operation of all these Sentinels being rebuilt. And it's different models and stuff too. It's not just the run of the mill Sentinel. There's all kinds of like specialty Sentinels and everything. And they were all based on like Nimrod technology that was left over from one of the previous crossovers. So this is about the time that the rest of X Factor shows up. They're super angry with Val Cooper for um, keeping this information from them. Eventually, now that uh, X-Factor is there, they've seen what the Acolytes wanted them to see, which is that humans are not trustworthy. So they show up. It's pretty much all the Acolytes that are left that weren't arrested in the uh, nursing home massacre. So they show up. They fight with X-Factor. They try to convince Quicksilver to join their cause because it's what Magneto would have wanted. And like no one understood Magneto quite like Quicksilver. And Quicksilver kind of has the point where it's like, if I'm the only one that truly knows who Magneto is, and I think that his mission is terrible, like, doesn't that tell you something? Anyway, so there's there's a good battle. There's some fun sequences of action here. Like, Joe Quesada's really on top of his game here. Like, this, 
other than the uh, Daredevil series that he did with Kevin Smith, I'd probably say that like Joe Quesada's early X Factor is probably my favorite of all of his work that he's done. Like he's done a lot of really good stuff, but early X Factor is really good. You know, he really draws each one so differently, and he he really has a good grasp on how to direct the violence and stuff that we see on the page, the diff- the various fighting and stuff. It's all very good. Ultimately, the issue ends with uh, X-Factor defeating the Acolytes, the Acolytes leaving. Uh, and after like the whole battle, they find out that Senator Kelly had also kind of absconded with all of the Sentinels. And so the X-Factor is kind of left here holding the bag with like nothing to show for it, other than the fact that they're all super angry with Valerie Cooper. So the issue ends with like Valerie Cooper upset because X-Factor is turning their back on her. And, you know, she views them as friends, but they're all really mad about what she did to like, keep it a secret and all that stuff. Anyway, it's uh, it's the end of an era for X-Factor, as after this, I believe, is like when Forge joins the team. And when Forge joins the team, eventually Mystique and then Sabretooth and a couple people leave the, the book as well. So it's really the end of, of an era of like X-Factor working together with Valerie Cooper and being like the government's good little mutant team. They kind of develop an edge after this. And it's all pretty much based on the events of this book. And it though it doesn't really affect uh, Fatal Attractions proper, like you can probably just read Uncanny 304, X-Men 25, and then Wolverine 75 and not read the other three issues. Uh, but it does at least set the stage for you know, just how evil the Acolytes can be in the name of Magneto and, you know, kind of how far gone they really are from from reason. So next up is X-Force 25. Uh, This is a good one. When Nicieza took over the writing of X-Force, it took a little bit of time until he found the voice of the characters and what tone he really wanted to set for the book. This book that saw, you know, the former Teenage New Mutants kind of become this, like, super militarized group of freedom fighters who did didn't necessarily kill their enemies but they weren't afraid of using violence uh, extreme violence even uh, just short of like murder uh, against like the more violent evil mutant groups that were out there it also became like a very personal fight against cable's evil clone strife or is cable the clone hmm. i can never keep them straight and so this book is a little bit different uh as far as tone goes and everything, but still pretty good. It deals with the return of Cable, who had been missing, I think, in the time stream since the last major crossover, which I discussed briefly, Executioner's Song. Uh, And it sees just a typical day in the life of X-Force. They're out on a mission. They return home to their base, Camp Verde, uh, which is like the reservational home of their... Native American character Warpath, uh, his entire like Apache tribe was murdered, and no one knows who did it or why. And so, in the meantime, uh, X Force is using that location as their base. They have a couple of bunkers here and there, and it's mostly made up of former New Mutants and a couple of like the new teenage recruits from like the early X Factor days, as well. So the team is made up of Cannonball, Warpath. Siren, Sunspot, Richter, Shatterstar, Feral, and Boom Boom, who by this point was going by the name Boomer, uh, although she only really goes by that name fairly briefly. So, team of eight, 
Uh, it's a good team. I, I really enjoy the early X-Force stuff, especially after <laughs> especially after Rob Liefeld left the book. They brought in a couple of artists. Greg Capullo penciled a couple of issues or a couple of arcs, and then another artist came in before they finally settled. And I forget the artist's name who they settled on, but I think he came in for a, a, a you know a sustained run of like 30 or 40 issues or something along with uh, Nicieza. So a good run, but they return home to their base here at Camp Verde, and they realize that their base has been infiltrated, and they're not sure by whom or what this infiltrator's desire is. So they break up into teams. We get to see Sam, who had taken on leadership of the team, you know, barking out orders and being the new field commander. It's interesting to see him as field commander without his co-team leader of Danny Moonstar, as at this point in the comics she had joined up with like the MLF or the Dark Riders or one of those evil mutant groups for a little while. So we get to see him give orders. He splits up the team into four two-person squads. Eventually, they're going around trying to figure out who had infiltrated the base until eventually we find out that it's Cable returned from the time stream. And the first thing he does when he gets home is decides, well, I got to see, you know, where the team's at. So I'll just set up the uh, set up a break-in and then ambush each of the groups. You know, and while they're there, while they're talking with Cable and kind of getting reacquainted and welcoming him back, they have like another unwanted visitor arrive in the form of Exodus. And Exodus is the character that X-Factor had encountered in their last issue, although they didn't really have any interactions with him. He just kind of appeared and then left. Obviously, he was looking for someone. The person that he was looking for was not part of the X-Factor team, and so he went continuing on his journey. And he arrives at Camp Verde and pretty much says, I am an emissary of Magneto, and I am here to offer sanctuary to Sam and Bobby, because, you know, they were on the original New Mutants. They were, you know, the second group, pretty much, of, even though it was really like the third group, they were like the third group that Xavier took under their wing, as well as the fact that they were like one of the second or third groups that Magneto took under his wing. So they have ties to both of the dreams, and Magneto wants to extend them a place of, you know, power and stuff in his new world order, kind of a, kind of a deal. So, of course... They all know that Magneto's a bad guy at this point, and yet Sam kind of works out a deal where he's like, yeah, look, you can, Bobby and I will go, you have to take everybody else too, with, I think there's like one exception, I think he leaves, he leaves most of them, he leaves Cable, Warpath, Shatterstar, and Siren, and the rest of the group goes. So Sam, Boomer, Sunspot, Richter, and then also Rusty and Skids who are there. And I'm not going to go into their whole thing. They were found by X-Factor and eventually they joined up with like X-Force kind of, but then they were brainwashed. And so X-Force is trying to help them out. So they are offered places on, on Avalon as well. So that group goes, the other four stay. But before Sam leaves, he actually plants like a tracking device and a communicator on cable so that they can stay in contact without this Exodus guy knowing. So Exodus takes them to Avalon, you know, Asteroid M, the sanctuary in the clouds, and just kind of tells them, like, here's what we're going to do. Um, you guys can join us, or you can go back to Earth, and, you know, we will show you no mercy when we come to take it over and kill the flat scans, etc. In the meantime, Cable and Siren and Warpath and Shatterstar are following the beacon, on their ship and eventually it leads them to asteroid m 
which is built in the remnants of Cable's ship Greymalkin, which was itself built in the remnants of Apocalypse's ship, which he just called ship. So they arrive, they infiltrate at the same time that uh, Sam kind of puts his own plan into place. X-Force fights some of the Acolytes saying like, yeah, we're not going to join you. They try to beat up Exodus, which is very sad. Exodus is just trying to do right, you know, by his master. They wreak a bunch of havoc and eventually everyone leaves except Rusty and Skids who choose to stay. And so Cable's like, all right, fine. So the rest of X-Force leaves except Cable. Cable stays on the ship because he's like, you know, I'll, if if Magneto's here and he's taken over the ship, that's fine. But I want to see if, you know, the professor, and that's the AI of the ship, I need to see if the professor's still alive. And if so, I need to figure out a way to not only remove him from the ship so that we can keep him alive, but also destroy the ship and destroy Magneto all at once. So he stays behind to try to do that. But Magneto himself arrives to thwart Cable's efforts. Uh, he uses his magnetic powers to like just disassemble all of the techno-organic parts of Cable, and eventually that act is like enough where X Force, who like had returned to the ship somehow or whatever, uh, they see it and they're like, "Yeah, if we weren't certain already, now we're we're sure. Like we're not going to join you, Magneto. You're crazy. We're going to take our guy and we're going to head out." And so Magneto's like, all right, fine, fair enough. And so he lets Cable and the rest of X-Force leave, and he stays on Avalon with Rusty and Skids. And, like, that's that's it. Uh, again, it was also, like, a bit of a change of status quo for X-Force as well, in, you know, light of his defeat here, and also the uh, seeing Rusty and Skids kind of defect and join Magneto. It... Uh, it sours a lot of X-Force, and I think from this point in the book, the next few story arcs kind of all deal with X-Force, not necessarily breaking up, but we get a few arcs that deal with, like, two or three characters at once. So, like, after this, we kind of get an arc, I think, with, like, Warpath and Siren going back to Ireland to deal with some fallout in Siren's family, and Cannonball and Boom Boom and sunspot and feral and shatterstar kind of stay as the group but then like also richter has some stuff that he deals with in his own personal life and then he comes back and he and shatterstar kind of go off so not as big of a change in the status quo as for x factor but definitely after this we do kind of get to see a little bit more character development really and see a lot of these characters deal with some of their own personal demons before really coming back and you know reforming as the core of x-force that that we know that kind of drives some of their uh, future storylines so again it deals with magneto it's like the first confirmation that we get that magneto is in fact still alive after uh, hit the attack on him by fabian cortez and of course this continues in the pages of uncanny x-men 304 and this is really like the beginning of like this is the, like the meat and potatoes of the whole story right like this is the beginning point it's like 45 pages long it's a really massive story and the first 20 pages or so of the story really deal with like two things one of them is it kind of reestablishes magneto we kind of get to see now that Magneto knows who it was that attacked him, we kind of get to see some like acolyte justice here um, on Magneto's part. It takes us in and we get like a very personal story about the time that Magneto swore like never again. Um, it's this really personal story about his daughter 
who was killed by humans before he was Magneto when he was just known as Eric Lencher. His daughter Anya was killed by humans and then he and his wife was killed by humans and they attempted to kill him as well and like that was that was it like that was the final straw that was the moment that turned Eric Lencher into Magneto and it was the beginning it was like the birth of his dream which is humans suck and we're going to enslave them and kill them and let them die because we're better than this we're not mindless killers like humans are they're obsolete you know genetic wise and everything so we get a story we get that story from magneto but we also get a story of charles xavier or more importantly charles xavier's failure and that failure leads into a funeral we have this story of magneto the story of his loss you know the loss of a child the loss of a loved one and how it affected him and how it soured him against the human race and how he he formed his dream and became the master of magnetism and then we get that same kind of story the death of a child the loss of innocence from xavier's point of view and the point of view of the x-men and see how differently they handle that loss and the loss that i'm talking about is the loss of colossus's little sister Ilyana rasputin the big takeaway the big event that happened at the end of the last crossover executioner song was the release of the legacy virus on mutant kind. It is a fatal disease that infects only mutants. There is no cure. It is pretty much like a future disease, so modern technology isn't going to be able to stop it, and various mutants throughout the world begin to contract this legacy virus and start to die. So over the last year or so, uh, no one more prominent than little girl Ilyana Rasputin is infected. Xavier, and Moira, and Hank, and everyone who is a super scientist slash geneticist who is friendly with the X-Men uh, is able to prevent Ilyana Rasputin from dying. And so it's just a story of how some of the X-Men try to deal with their grief. There's a story here with Colossus who has kind of like shut himself off. After Ilyana's death, he no longer takes on his human form he stays in his metal form he becomes cold and distant and you know emotionless and everything he's he's shutting down he is in such grief here that he stops being able to function really as as a human with with really any kind of emotions that in turn affects all of the x-men that he's close to namely kitty pride and aurora monroe uh, and they have the funeral pretty much all of the x-men are there the x-men are there x-factor is there X-Force is there. Some of Excalibur is there. I had mentioned Kitty uh, being there. Kurt is also there. So all of these characters who, who had been touched by Ilyana, obviously X-Force is there because Ilyana was a member of the New Mutants when she was a teenager, uh, and the New Mutants grew up to become X-Force, so naturally uh, they attend as well. X-Factor, all the, all the mutants who are an X-Mutant, you know, they all had ties. They'd all been touched by... Ileana. And so we have this very somber, very sad funeral service with Storm speaking to the X-Men. You know, she's one of the leaders. And afterwards, the service, all of the uh, various X-Men are coming together. Kitty and, and Sam share an embrace. You know, they're very sad about everything as, you know, Ileana, when she was a teenager and Kitty was a teenager, they were best friends. And then when Ileana was reverted back to being a child, Kitty had taken on kind of like a big sister role 
as well. And it's just, it's a death that's felt by by everyone. You know, Xavier looks at it as a failure and everyone else looks at it as a loss. And it's at this moment where Xavier tries to, not necessarily apologize, but he tries to speak with Peter. And Peter's like, whatever, dude, like your dream is crap. You promised me this life. You you fed me this dream and I, you gave me something to believe in. And I've given more than my fair share to your dream. And it was because I was fighting for your dream that I failed Ilyana. She's dead. Your dream has failed and all that. It's at this moment where Colossus is questioning Xavier's dream to his face that Magneto himself shows up to not even necessarily pay his respects. You'd think that he would come to pay his respects to Ilyana, having been the headmaster when she was a member of New Mutants, but not really. He just comes to use this saying like, you know, this legacy virus was created by humans. This is just another outrage in a long list of trespasses, you know, of grievances against humankind. And I'm here now to tell you Xavier's dream is dead. You know, Colossus himself has even said so. And so here I am to recruit you to my dream, you know, come fight for my dream. Come live with me on Avalon. Like all of you are welcome. All of you are invited. I'm here to give you salvation. Pretty much the same spiel that he gave to X-Force in the last issue when they were on Asteroid M. Then of course he shows up uh, and then his acolytes begin to show up after him. You've got like Sinyaka and Exodus and Unicyan and all kinds of people. Amelia votes there. Again, I'm not going to list all of them, but yeah, like the acolytes appear. Magneto kind of has a showdown philosophically, uh, if you will, with, with Xavier. They kind of have just this argument back and forth. My dream, your dream, your dream, my dream, this and that. The X-Men try to fight him. They don't really succeed. Although one mutant in particular is able to like absorb, because Magneto's like holding them all in place with the iron in their blood. Uh, but by exerting that magnetic field over all of them, he's releasing amounts of energy that eventually Bishop absorbs enough and he's able to redirect that back to Magneto, thus freeing the X-Men. So we get this very short-lived battle where all of the X-Men, now that they're free, try to fight Magneto. And he basically just shrugs it off. He's like, yeah, you know, good job there, Bishop, but you redirecting my power isn't really enough to stop me. So you've heard, you've heard my pitch and like, that's it. Again, there's some battles and, and whatever. Ultimately, what happens, though, is Colossus goes to the aid of Magneto and he joins with Magneto. And Magneto leaves and he takes Colossus with him. There's like a lot more action and yelling and stuff, but I don't want to go too too much too much into it. Uh, as he leaves, you know, Xavier is kind of holding on to him. And so Xavier ends up like falling back to Earth and everything. That's Uncanny X-Men 304. So it's like, all right, we've been slowly building up to this. We've been seeing the Acolytes start getting to the point where the X-Teams have to intervene. We have Magneto himself coming down, drawing his line in the sand. And that takes us into X-Men 25. And so X-Men 25 is like the main, this is the main event. So X-Men 25. Magneto is back in space, having drawn his line in the sand, and he makes his first move. There is a series of satellites around the Earth. And seeing the aggressive acts of the Acolytes, seeing the aggression of Magneto against the X-Men, um, and knowing that Magneto is up in space floating around in his little sanctuary, 
the human leaders of Earth are like, all right, cool, well, uh, we might as well put in our anti-magneto defenses now. So there's the series of satellites around the world that are able to create some sort of like a network, a shield around the Earth that would prevent magneto from breaching the magnetic field. It's like a, a magneto deterrent. And Magneto's like, well, I see how it is. This is an act of aggression. The humans have finally abandoned us. They know that we're here and they've cut us off from the world, thus its resources, and they have left us here to die. And Magneto goes, and that is the final straw. They think that they can block me out with their own, you know, magnetic prowess. Yeah, right. So Magneto flies off into space. He breaches this, like, power matrix this magnetic matrix around the earth and he pretty much short circuits it causes like an emp to to short circuit every one of these satellites and it's such a outpouring of magnetic energy that it like messes with the earth's own magnetic field causing blackouts and floods and harsh weather and all kinds of stuff and it's not, it doesn't go unnoticed by the x-men so the x-men are like all right well, mankind had every reason to fear Magneto. They had every reason to stand in their own defense and put that force field around the earth. And Magneto responded by not only wiping it out, but by causing all of these natural disasters and putting all these lives in jeopardy. So this is it. Like Magneto find a peaceful solution. He chose to attack. So now we have to attack him. There's no stopping him this time. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put a team of our best X-Men together. We're going to infiltrate his base and we are going to stop him once and for all. And in the meantime, the rest of you will remain on earth to assist with, you know, ground support for our mission in space or support to the humans or, you know, whoever just, we're going to try to undo everything that Magneto did that we, you know, that we possibly can. So he takes this team and the team consists of himself now wearing like this, Shi'ar powered exo suit that allows him to walk and everything even though it does take a lot of his mental energy because that's how it's powered uh, so he takes with him wolverine gambit jean gray quicksilver and rogue and he leaves the rest of them on earth to do what they have to do so this team is able to go into space they are able to infiltrate avalon and breach the ship and lucky for them when they breach the ship they do trip an alarm or at least trip a warning but colossus who even though he went with magneto and has joined the acolytes he's still a good person and doesn't necessarily want to see the humans die he just feels that maybe mutants should be more forceful and take their rightful place so he sees the x-men arrive and he's like hmm should i tell the acolytes and magneto that the x-men are here or should I not? And ultimately, he chooses not to tell. It's not necessarily him joining the X-Men again, but it's at least him saying, I agree with Magneto, but only to an extent. And if Magneto is going to be violent and cause death, then maybe the X-Men should at least have a chance to stop him. And we'll see who wins. And, and that's exactly what happens. You know, the X-Men split off into their various teams and they start infiltrating this base until eventually they come face-to-face -face with Magneto. Now, before they come face-to-face, -face, they do manage to, like, trip one of the systems within 
Avalon and like teleport all of the Acolytes off uh, off the ship, leaving like only Magneto and Exodus and Colossus pretty much at this point. Um, so they do that and Magneto's like, who dares? And he's like, ah, I see. It was Charles. And we go, they, they actually go into a battle. Magneto's like, you're, he says, you know, I will continue to fight. Uh, you know, I've offered them hope and truth, opportunity and accomplishment, and I will continue to do so for all mutants whom I deem worthy, and I will not let your X-Men stop me again. So battle ensues, and now it's like full-on X-Men versus Magneto. Again, you got Rogue and Gambit, you got Quicksilver, you got Jean, you got Wolverine, you got Xavier, uh, you know, lots of powerhouses on this team. They do, they fight against Magneto. We got Gambit hitting Magneto in the face with his cards and everything, but then he stops him. You got Rogue and everyone. There's a lot of talk. <laughs> There's a lot of like philosophical arguments going on while we were getting these really great battles. These really great battle scenes from Andy Kubert, by the way. Like Andy Kubert is is awesome. His run on X Men is is one of my favorites. Like it's part of the reason why I, like why I thoroughly enjoy. 90s X-Men is, you know, the brothers Kubert and then Joe Mad and then the writing from Nicieza and Lobdell. Like, I really like a lot of uh, a lot of 90s stuff. And so all of the X-Men kind of take their various shots. Even Quicksilver is defeated by Magneto until finally who comes to take him on but Wolverine. So Wolverine actually hits Magneto when he's not paying attention, really. Uh, he's kind of distracted with having taken out Quicksilver and Wolverine comes up and like slashes his stomach open. You don't actually see any blood or gore or anything. It's actually kind of funny because it's like Wolverine rips into him and Magneto's like, oh, how could you have done this? Like, I'm dying. But then they show him and it's like his costume's ripped open, but like his skin is, he doesn't even have any scratches. It's just like perfect skin because, you know, that's how comics were in the 90s. You couldn't just show all kinds of blood and, and viscera. But uh, we can assume that Wolverine like did kind of cut open Magneto at least to the point where Magneto is bleeding profusely and is worried because he's like, what have you, what have you done? You know, like, and all that. And that, that's like the last straw. That's the last straw for Magneto. He just kind of yells at him like, no more, Logan. Foolish, foolish man. It ends for us both now. Our long association, my most visceral enemy, my most respected foe is over. And that's when Magneto reaches out with his magnetic powers, takes hold of Wolverine, and begins to extract painfully all of the adamantium that had been bonded to all of Wolverine's bones. It says, magnetic fire courses through Wolverine's body, and it begins with a small tug, an almost gentle pull, a harder yank, then a wrenching tear. We get like five panels of the adamantium kind of coming out slowly. We see it coming out of his arm his shoulder his hands and then eventually his entire body there's just this blood curdling scream uh, we have gene like oh lord logan and you have xavier pleading with him like for the love of for the love of god don't do this and you know magneto is just getting more and more crazy and he just starts just ripping it out we can see some blood although it's just like colored black because it's 90s but it's coming out of his arms his legs his abdomen his his hands his face like everywhere where you would think like a, a large bone would be where the metal would be in like you know greatest density like it's coming out of there and we get this really awesome narration from Nicieza here wolverine doesn't scream indeed he doesn't even have time 
as the adamantium, which long ago was bonded to his very bones, is destabilized on a molecular level, ripped from its moorings and forced through his open wounds, erupting outward like water bursting through a dam. As he falls, the stillness of pure horror surrounds the killing ground, broken only by the voice of one person who has, since the day she first met him, and perhaps always will. And you just hear Gene screaming, Logan! Um, and, like, that's... And <laughs> so, Wolverine, almost gutting Magneto, pushes Magneto to the breaking point, and then Xavier, watching Wolverine go through the greatest shock of his life, that's the last straw for him. Wolver uh, at this point, Magneto is helmetless, and he's crazed, so he doesn't notice Xavier getting close. And Xavier grabs Magneto and like just he just erases his mind he just like wipes his mind completely clean he's basically catatonic and he's alive but he's catatonic you know Xavier is shouting no more Magnus no more Logan shall be the last no one else will ever suffer you caused the death of hundreds today Magnus deaths I could have prevented had I stopped you years ago you have killed too many Magnus and I have had enough I will make sure here and now once and for all that you never kill again and like and <laughs> like that's it like whoa uh so at that point colossus shows up and he's like i've done enough i've let you people on here and this is what you do he's like wolverine needs help you must take him back home and you must help him but you leave magneto i will care for him now and the x-men are like no you know peter you have to come with us and he's like even though xavier might be defeated and his dream might be dying like it doesn't mean that i return and you know believe xavier's dream like the that's hardly the case. Like I still made a promise to Magneto and I still believe in his dream. And if the only thing I have left to do is care for him, uh, unlike I was able to do for my sister, then, then I will. And so the X-Men gather up what, you know, what's left of Wolverine and they get on a ship and they leave. It says, and Piotr Nikolaevich Rasputin finds he has no tears to shed for them or Magneto, Ilyana or himself. And in the silence, one can almost hear the fading of a dream. And so like that's pretty much, that's it. Like, that's Fatal Attractions. Wolverine 75 is the next issue in the uh, crossover, but it mostly deals with the aftermath. Uh, Wolverine 75, awesome, awesome issue, written by Larry Hama. I don't care what people say. I know that it's, like, the cool thing to do right now to, like, not like Larry Hama's 90s Wolverine run, but whatever. Larry Hama's Wolverine run is is fantastic it's friggin phenomenal just the way he writes the character artwork from adam kubert is just beyond amazing and even when hama was teamed up with sylvester it was fantastic like i've covered a lot of wolverine on this podcast over the last year and a half or the last two years even and i think outside of like you know the the traditional x or wolverine volume one from claremont miller and like weapon x from barry windsor smith uh, the Hammer run has like the most sustained success. It's got like the greatest run of Wolverine stories, like within a particular time frame. Just it's great stuff. And this issue is like one of the pinnacles of not only Hama's writing tenure on uh, Wolverine, but even some of the best pencils that we get from Adam Cooper. And this was one of the first issues of Wolverine that he drew. Maybe even I don't think it was the first. I'd have to go back and look, but I know it was one of the first ones that he had he had drawn of Wolverine. So it starts off, the X-Men are in the Blackbird. They're trying to get back to Earth, but you know this particular version of the Blackbird wasn't necessarily made for 
re-entry. It wasn't really even made to leave the atmosphere in the first place, but you know, that was like in short order, like that was the only way to get to Avalon. So we get, it's like a threefold story. So we have like the X-Men in the ship trying to get back into Earth. At the same time, we've got Xavier and Jean Grey trying to go in and out of Wolverine's mind to keep his mind from like allowing his body to die. Like they have to keep him sane so that his body can heal how it needs to heal because he's never gone through trauma like this before just what's going on all of the metal being ripped out it's like it's almost as bad as what was going on when they bonded it to him in the first place but when they bonded it to him in the first place they had him sedated they had him whatever right like they were experimenting on him there were controls to program it was okay if he lost his mind because they were implanting memories and pretty much creating a weapon anyway so it's the exact opposite this time it's like they need to make sure that his mind stays intact so that his body can heal itself so it kind of goes in between like the x-men on the ship and then like wolverine subconscious with either xavier or gene being inside and and it's no different here they're in the blackbird they're trying to get back into space wolverine is like just pretty much dying rogue is like what are we going to do like we have to land the ship but we have to keep logan alive and xavier and gene are like this is what we have to do like rogue you and gambit kind of watch the metacart and try to you know monitor his vital signs do what you can for him physically gene and i are going to go in his mind and see what we can do for him mentally so the next page is like this big spread page of it's called nightmares persist and it's like wolverine tied up he's got saber tooth like cutting him open and lady death strikes there as well you got like some of the some of the reavers and stuff are in the background and everything there's some weird symbolism we get like the cool spiky stuff that you would always get from the you know the Silvestri issues that dealt with all of that and so you know Kubert's putting that in here as well Wolverine like in his mind is kind of like going over having he's like slipping back and forth between like these weird surreal memories of the adamantium bonding process and then the adamantium being ripped out and kind of back and forth and you know gene's freaking out seeing all this symbolism and all this imagery and xavier's like no no it's cool like we have to do what we can we have to figure out a way to reach his mind and calm it and everything we get some fun panels where they're like in his mind but they're like shrunk down so they're like on logan's chest watching what his body goes through during the adamantium bonding process and everything and then, of course, there's the trouble with the ship. You know, Bishop somehow is there now. I don't remember him being on part of the team that went on the mission in the first place, but apparently he was. Uh, so Bishop's there. He's trying to fly the ship. He's getting help from Quicksilver. They've got Gambit down in, like, the engineering bay trying to figure out what they can do to the engine to make sure that that doesn't crap out as they're trying to re-enter. You got Rogue monitoring the metacart and everything. At one point, there's like this lurching in the ship and the shock of it, like Wolverine wakes up and Xavier's like, quick, give him some metamorphine. And Wolverine's like, no, don't give me any morphine. Like, I have to do this. I have to be awake and like will my body into healing itself. And Xavier's like, okay, fine, you're right. Wolverine kind of falls back unconscious. You see him heal, but then you see the the healing stop and you see the wounds like reopen because his healing factor is like in shock he's mentally in shock his healing factor is in shock because it doesn't know what to heal first it's like it can't prioritize what to heal because everything needs to be healed he's got all these open wounds all over his body where the adamantium was ripped out eventually 
it gets the shuttle gets close enough where they can make contact with Moira. So Moira is on the ground trying to say, you know, if you need to save Wolverine, this is what you have to do. You know, you monitor this, you monitor that, get this to go down and everything. I don't know why this whole issue, like this, this whole thing with like, oh, the space shuttle's falling to Earth. We can't do anything to help it. They are going to have to figure out how to land themselves. But they've got like three different teams of X people down there, four different teams. You'd think that they could figure out a way to intercept the ship, get the X-Men off the ship, and and help Wolverine. But like obviously they they can't like we're falling too fast it's like storm can't just go up there and like use her wind powers to stop it or like polaris who has magnetic power she can't just go up there and stop the ship whatever then it wouldn't be as dramatic right uh so the x-men are, are fighting to to re-enter the, at- the atmosphere eventually they're able to kind of do so xavier has to go back into wolverine's mind this time on you know with a little bit more control trying to Rather than passively passively observe, he's like trying to proactively coach Wolverine's psyche into the right areas and everything so that he can remain calm. Unfortunately for him, there's like this this version of Wolverine in there who's like afraid of Magneto for what it did and like just wants to die. He just wants to go back to the light, um, which eventually he finds the light with the help of Xavier. But Xavier's trying to tell him like, no, don't go into it. Like, you don't have to die. We can bring you back. Then we flash back to like what's going on in the ship. One of the hatches like blows off. So Jean's trying to telekinetically hold on to the ship and keep the ship from falling apart. She gets sucked out and like right before she's about to fly out, we go back into like Wolverine's psyche where like he's running towards the light, but then he hears a voice and it sounds like Jean's voice. And she's like, Wolverine help. Uh, And he's like, no, you help me. And so he's, running towards the light but now instead of running towards the light itself he's like running towards gene's voice and eventually that's like enough it's it's not xavier and his help it's gene and her need for him to save her that kind of brings him back to his sanity and as soon as his sanity returns like his body begins to heal it heals enough that he's able to get up off like this gurney thing and actually physically grab onto Jean's arm and like prevent her from being sucked out of the ship. And once he's able to do that, they've fallen far enough into the atmosphere that like the cabin pressure isn't so bad that he can pull her back in. She can use her power to stabilize the ship and eventually they make a landing. So they get back to earth all in one piece. Everyone's alive, but Magnet or Wolverine has now healed, but he doesn't have his adamantium bones anymore like i could probably just stop now because we've covered all the way up to the healing factor uh but i want to keep going there's about 10 more pages in this issue and then of course we'll we'll briefly discuss the excalibur issue as well and that will end uh fatal attractions but i wanted to talk about this one for his healing factor obviously his healing factor can heal him all the way back from a single cell right it uses the adamantium kind of like as an anchor and it heals itself all the way back. Then, of course, looking at the Brood Saga, the fact that Wolverine had the adamantium, that was what was able, again, he can anchor his psyche to that adamantium. It was a source of strength to him for some reason, and that was how he was able to fight off the Brood infection. So I wanted to discuss Fatal Attractions last, as Fatal Attractions was the opposite of those two things. Both of those stories involved Wolverine using his adamantium skeleton, even though it wasn't something that he asked for. It was something that was forced upon him. Uh, He used that as an anchor to 
keep himself sane, to keep his healing factor going. But this time it was different. This time we see it was the removal of the adamantium that was the issue, right? And he had to heal without it. So how does he do that? He he has to use his psyche, like his 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 mental faculties, his very sanity itself is tied to his healing factor. And I just thought that was a fun contrast. We got to see him be tied to his adamantium and actually use that as a source of strength, but now that strength has been robbed from him. So what can he do? Uh, you know, obviously his connection to Jean Grey played a big role, but his healing factor steadied as soon as he was able to regain control of his sanity. You know, as soon as he stopped having these weird visions and stuff, uh, he was able to then jump back in. So I just, I like that idea of that his healing factor, it's more than just this physical passive mutation that just, you know, instantly heals him. There's, there's ties to his psyche. There's ties to his mental sanity. I just really like that concept of, um, you know, how the healing factor works. So that being said, Wolverine no longer with his adamantium bones, uh, it doesn't really say how much time has passed, just that time heals all wounds. And the X-Men are in the middle of a danger room session. And Wolverine walks in and he's like, I want to know, I want to know what my limits are. You know, I want to know where I'm at. I'm still the best there is at what I do, but I don't know how well I can do it if I don't have my adamantium. Like I need to know what my limits are now so I can figure out how to remain the best. And he does. He goes in there. He, uh, takes on a couple of, you know, androids and things, but eventually they kind of are able to get the best of him, and that pushes him into a rage, you know. Uh, they punch him in the face, they're breaking bones, which of course heal very quickly, but still, you know, they're breaking his bones, breaking his jaw, throwing him against the wall, and it pushes Wolverine into a bit of a rage, you know. He's like, these piles of scrap metal and circuit boards ain't got nothing on the old knucklehead. You know, I may be down, but I but I ain't out, and I'm still the best at what I do. And he manages to pop his claws, which, you know, really freaks out the X-Men. He pops his claws and lets out this shriek. You know, it's this page is awesome, this, this single panel. I'm going to see if I can uh, remember to tweet it out the day before the episode drops, because it's a great, great panel. But it's, ah, uh, he's screaming, and it just says, his claws, they're bone. So it's... It's not narration, even though it's kind of presented as a narration box. It's just the various X-Men in the, you know, observation room talking about him. But like, his claws, their bone, how can that be? Get down there, get him to retract them. Stop the bleeding, shut down those battle droids. You just hear Jubilee like, Wolvie, and everything. And it's, you know, his healing factor used to close the wounds. Like, he's not healing. We need, we need coagulant and we need two whole units of blood and everything. And it's, and all this. Also a fun issue because we find out uh, at this point this was the first time that there had been any kind of inclination that Wolverine's claws were in fact bone. And the reason why that they were metal is because the adamantium bonded to them just as it had bonded to all of the other bones in his body. And with that, it kind of, the discovery of the bone claws is like the beginning of Wolverine's descent into his like feral wolverine stage that actually went on for quite a few years like this happens in 1993 is when the story came out and like wolverine didn't get his adamantium back until 1999 and he was like in savage wolverine mode 
until like 96, 97. So like it was a long while the Wolverine uh, like descended into that like feral Wolverine state where like he loses his nose for a little while. It gets kind of, it gets a little weird. Uh, but like this was the beginning of that spiral out for him. You get some really sweet moments at the very end between him and Jubilee. And I, I love Jubilee when Larry Hama writes her. I really don't care for Jubilee that much in a lot of other stuff. Uh, but but Larry Hama's Jubilee is like my favorite Jubilee. I love his Jubilee. I think I like Hama's Jubilee more than any version of Kitty. I'm just, you know, because they're like disciples of Logan. I figured I would just compare the two. And yeah, like Hama's Jubilee is the best. So yeah, like I said, just a couple of really sweet moments between him and Jubilee at the end. And at the end of the issue, he chooses to leave the X-Men and go on his own path of like self-rediscovery. Um, he learned a lot of stuff about himself in that particular issue. So uh, that was Wolverine 75, milestone issue. Lots of stuff happens. Great issue. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot more visceral than I was explaining. So definitely go back and, and read it. Obviously, I talked a lot more in detail about X-Men 25 than, than Wolverine 75, but very important issue. Uh, so definitely go check that, that one out. Hama and Kubert like at their pinnacle. And that takes us to Excalibur, which is mostly an epilogue. It takes place with uh, Kitty and Kurt and Rachel on Muir Island as Moira has like one of the acolytes they've taken prisoner and everything. And so eventually the X-Men show up and they're like, hey, here's the deal. Uh, Magneto's been destroyed or defeated the acolytes are in in ruins we're like hunting the last of them down to defeat them i know the x-force is also doing that but uh we have like a loose end here uh there's something wrong with colossus like it yeah we can understand him like losing faith in the dream and, and shacking up with magneto but the problem is that like he suffered a head wound and we haven't healed him from it and we think that that's part of the reason why so kitty we need your help to like set a trap so kitty reluctantly agrees she sends a like a, a video communication up to Colossus saying like, I want to join you. I love you. I miss you. If you're an Acolyte, I want to be an Acolyte. Please come get me on Muir Island. So Colossus is like, all right. So he comes down. The X-Men are able to subdue him. They fix his head wound. He wakes up and he's like, I appreciate you guys fixing my head wound, but here's the deal. Like I joined Magneto. Magneto needs me to take care of him. So I'm, I'm going back. At the same time, uh, when he arrives, Cable's like, oh, another Acolyte on Muir Island. I should go hunt him down. So he shows up and ends up fighting with like Rachel for a little while. Uh, like that's pretty much Excalibur 71. Um, and then the end of that issue, another big like paradigm shift. At that point, Nightcrawler is like, you know, half, half of Excalibur is gone and in shambles. All that's left is like him and Kitty and... Rachel. And so at this point, they're like, you know, we've been partnered up with Moira and, you know, helping Colossus and stuff like being proactive. He's like, there are a lot of X teams going around fighting, but we don't want to do that. We want to be an X team that goes around helping, helping mutants deal with their powers, helping mutants be better. He's like, and so we're going to stay on Muir Island and help Moira if that's okay with her. And she's like, heck yeah. Uh, and so big paradigm shift in Excalibur. It, it, it shifts tonally a little bit after that as well. Eventually the ranks swell up again. We get like Pete Wisdom joining and then we get Doug Locke and then 
Captain Britain reappears as like Britannic, something weird like that. Uh, so again, like a, just a paradigm shift in like the issues, like every issue after this. So that is Fatal Attractions. That is Wolverine's healing factor. I actually really like it a lot. I know that uh, it's kind of maligned as like an X crossover, but it was like the logical step with what they had been doing with Magneto. It was like the great way to just finish off those last few loose ends that uh, Clarice Claremont had left around the time um, that he left the books. It had been a couple of years and everyone's like, you know, what's going on with Magneto? What's going on? Lots of changes in all of the books, uh, like lasting changes and everything when you didn't really get too much of that from Executioner Song, like not much changed other than like, oh yeah, by the way, there's like this virus going around killing mutants now, but like nothing was really resolved and it didn't really lend itself to like future storylines other than a couple legacy virus deaths here and there. So Fatal Attractions, in my opinion, like the best non-Claremont or yeah, the best non-Claremont crossover up until like, uh, Age of Apocalypse and like Messiah Complex like really from the time Claremont left I would say those are like the three the three best crossovers really in my opinion Fatal Attractions Age of Apocalypse and Messiah Complex um, you know until you get to like the current stuff that's going on with with Hawks Pox which uh, I finally finished all of Hawks Pox so that was good uh, and I'm actually looking forward to all the titles that that stem from that uh, Marauders, I think, is the one I'm looking forward to the most, and then um, Excalibur after that, and of course um, the recent announcement of Benjamin Percy uh, going is going to come write a Wolverine series, and Adam Kubert is returning to pencil the character that, in my opinion, is uh, the best character for him to draw and the best artist to draw that character. So I'm really looking forward to to that. Um, more than I've looked forward to a Wolverine story in a long time. Uh, Benjamin Percy wrote the two um, podcast seasons, Wolverine the Long Night and Wolverine the Lost Trail, and I think that he's got a really good voice for Wolverine. Uh, we especially got to see that in season two, which was The Lost Trail. So having him come on to write Wolverine and, and Adam Cooper to draw, really looking forward to that. So Bubs, uh, I hope this episode was worth the wait. I was going to do a lot less detail and really just cover uh, 25 and 75 and even less detail than I did in this episode. And I'll even cover the rest of Fatal Attractions, but it all kind of goes hand in hand. And so I really wanted to make sure that I got you guys a good episode, you know, worthy of talking snicked. So uh, hopefully it was worth the wait. And that is it for October. In November... Um, I'm working on the theme for it. I'm thinking of a theme of teamwork as November in the U.S. is the month of Thanksgiving. And depending on history and all that, uh, the one thing that we can say about Thanksgiving, it's a time to get together with family and friends. It's a time to be thankful for the things that you have in your life. But it's also a time to understand teamwork, you know, working together as the Native Americans and the pilgrims did, you know, on the, the story of the first Thanksgiving where they came together and had a feast and all that in the name of teamwork and all that. So uh, that is going to be my theme for November. And with that, I am going to look at Wolverine's various teams, uh, probably New Avengers, 
X-Force and Uncanny X-Force. So keep that in mind, bubs. That is what is coming up for November. Uh, bubs, if you want to get in contact with me, you can do so via email, talksnicked at gmail.com, or on Twitter, at Ryan Does it Nerdy. That's my personal Twitter, but I talk about X-Men, Wolverine, and all the other things that I'm into. If you like the music, stay tuned to the end and check out the track Back from the Dead, created by Retcon X, musician who makes music based on the X-Men, inspired by the X-Men. I have links to his Spotify playlist and his website in the show notes, so go check him out. Until next time, bubs. Bye.